Well, good morning. Had to turn the AC on. I didn't want to be the old Baptist guy that's sweating with the do-rag out up here, right? <laughs> Nothing against our Baptist brothers. We love them. We love them. So we're in our second week of our series, looking at margin this week. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to talk a little bit before we, we read the section that we're going to read. But I want you to be in Mark chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, get them out. And if you can get them out on your phones without texting your neighbor or Facebooking or checking Facebook Marketplace or something, then you can get it out on your phone. But if it's too much of a distraction, we have Bibles in front of you that you can grab one of those as well. So get a Bible out and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to read in verse 32 in a minute, but I want to bring you up to speed on some of the stuff that's happening in Mark 1 and kind of set the context for you a little bit this morning. Mark begins his gospel, and some commentators would say that he's in a hurry. He's in a hurry to get through what Jesus came to do. And so he skips the birth narratives altogether, right? If you read Matthew or Luke, you learn about in the days of Caesar Augustus, there was a census, the, well, you know, the, the birth narrative. He skips all of that. And he starts with a guy named John the Baptist. We're told that it began as the prophet Isaiah had written. That God would send a prophet or a messenger ahead of his Messiah to, pray, to prepare the way for his arrival. That man, that prophet who Isaiah spoke about a hundred, four, five hundred, six hundred years earlier, that man was John the Baptist. John the Baptist is out in the desert. He's a wild man. He's eating locusts and honey. He's preaching the gospel and proclaiming repentance baptism of repentance, come back, you guys are away from God, come back to God, and he's proclaiming that the Messiah has come. And no sooner than we get introduced to John the Baptist, remember, John, or Mark's in a hurry, he brings Jesus on the scene. And it is quite a scene when Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and he wants John to baptize him. And John, John knows who Jesus is. In fact, he's known who Jesus is before he was born. In utero, when Mary shows up and she has just conceived miraculously the virgin birth by the Holy Spirit, she shows up to her, her cousin Elizabeth's house, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, and it says the Spirit came on John the Baptist and he leapt for joy in his mother's womb. So he's known for his whole life who Jesus is. He knows Jesus is God. He knows he is the Messiah. He knows who Jesus is. And so when Jesus shows up and says, John, I want you to baptize me, he's more than a little taken back. He's like, are you sure? I feel like this should be the other way around. Jesus said, no, it will please my father that I am baptized. And just as a little aside here, if you're here this morning and you have never been baptized as a believer, as a believer, then I want to set that before you, invite you to search the scripture about what baptism is, and invite you to look at Jesus. If it pleased God for Jesus to be baptized, then I think it would probably please him if you decided to take the plunge as well. So think about that. But back to our story. Jesus is baptized. As he's brought up out of the water, the text tells us that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. It doesn't say he descended as a dove. It says like a dove. So maybe there was like a beam of light. Maybe there was a floaty dove-looking thing. We don't know, but something looked like came out of heaven, Holy Spirit descends, and there's a voice from heaven that like thunders out into the sky. And God says, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. And that's what God sounds like if you didn't know. 
Thanks for laughing at that. That was bad. All right. And from there, after this happens, we're told, uh, we're told that the Holy Spirit compels or drives or guides or directs Jesus into the wilderness, into the quiet place. And he fasts for 40 days or 40 nights where he is tempted by Satan. If you're in chapter 1, which I encourage you to get there, if you're in chapter 1, you'll find this in verse 12. It says, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. Now that word that's translated wilderness is translated elsewhere throughout the Gospels as the desolate place, the isolated place, the lonely place, the quiet place. The idea is that the Spirit drives or compels Jesus to go off the grid, to unplug, so to speak, to get alone, to retreat from the hustle and bustle of life for 40 days, and he does. We're told that he fasted from food, he spends time alone with God in silence and in solitude. He's alone, Mark says, but for the wild animals. He's out in the wood, not a creature around except for the wild animals. And it's here where Satan comes to tempt him. And if you're like me, I always thought, isn't that just like Satan? Wouldn't he come to us when we're at our weakest point, our most vulnerable point? That's what Satan thinks. I think that's why he comes to Jesus in, that, in this moment. And that's what I thought. But if you look at the rhythms and the patterns of Jesus' life, I think you're going to learn something quite different about the lonely and quiet places that Jesus often finds himself in, those places of retreat. These times for Jesus, this pattern of retreating to the quiet place to be alone with himself, with his thoughts, and with his Father, they're not places of weakness for Jesus. Rather, they are his refuge and his place of strength. I love how Seth opened the message for, or opened the the. the whatever we're calling today, the gathering today for us. I love how he opened that for us today in, in reading from Psalm 62. There's a willful dec- declaration on behalf of David. I will make God my refuge. He is my fortress. I will come to him and be strengthened. I will get alone and be quiet with him and find strength for my weary soul. That's what Jesus shows us. Jesus knew that if he was going to live a life of fruitfulness and fullness with his God, if he was going to live a life that is guided by the Holy Spirit rather than driven by the tyranny of the urgent or the agenda of Satan or the agenda of others, he knew that if he was going to live guided by the Spirit rather than driven by others, he needed to get alone regularly with his Father. And so Satan mistakenly thinks he is coming to Jesus during a time of weakness, but in fact, Satan has unwisely picked a fight on Jesus' turf, in his fortress, in his refuge, in his place of rest. He picked a fight with Jesus when Jesus was on the high ground, near to his Father, in that lonely, desolate place. Mark tells us that he defeats all of Satan's temptations, and then he returns from the quiet place, having spent 40 days in silence and solitude. He returns from the quiet place to the noise, to the hustle and bustle of the city life. And as we'll see, the dial on the treadmill, the speed, just gets ramped up for Jesus quickly. Jesus comes out of the lonely place, and immediately he goes into town and he begins a teaching circuit. 
He has tons of teaching engagements. He's traveling from synagogue to synagogue, teaching people what the word of God actually says. You've heard it this way, but I tell you, he says. Here's what this means. He's rounding up disciples who travel with him. He has enlisted students and followers. Those of you who have employees or children know the pressures that come along from people that follow you from people that are under your care, people that you're responsible to. Jesus has responsibility to many people. They are flocking to him. And there's a weight that comes along with that, isn't there? Whether it's your kids or employees, just the mental weight of knowing that you are responsible to help put food on someone else's table by drumming up work and making sure they're doing their stuff, that you are responsible to care for your kids and show them the way that they, can, they should go and protect them from all the craziness that's out in the world. There's a weight that comes to that, and that's exhausting, but that's not the only exhausting part. Being responsible to a bunch of people also means that you're going to feel like, you're going to feel like from time to time everybody wants a piece of you. And after a while, you begin to wonder, is there any of me left? Jesus gets this. He understands this. And as if these pressures weren't enough, Jesus' ministry and his message is starting to make up waves, or to, uh, to create waves in his life, turning up the pressure on his life. His teaching is authoritative, and it has started to raise some serious eyebrows. His teaching has already almost got him killed once. Mark skips over this because he's in a hurry. Luke slows down long enough to tell us that after he comes out of the wilderness, he goes to his hometown in Nazareth. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, I have come so that, or that when the Messiah comes, he will come to heal up the brokenhearted, to restore blight, sight to the blind, to do all of these things. He closes the scroll, and he says to his hometown, his hometown friends, his hometown relatives, his neighbors, he says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. I am that guy. And naturally, as you can imagine, his boyhood friends and his neighbors and his relatives are struggling to wrap their minds around that. They don't believe him. And rather than being quiet, peaceful Jesus, he presses in and he challenges them with some more scripture. And he says, yeah, all of the prophets from the Old Testament were treated this way in their hometown too. They missed the blessings of God because they could not get over what they thought they knew. I am the Messiah. And they drive him out to the edge of the town where there's a cliff and they threaten to throw him off of it. They try to throw him off of it. And I love it. You read it in Luke and it says, and Jesus slipped through their midst. And this is where my mind goes. I just see ninja Jesus, right? <laughs> like, I don't know how he did that, but it happens multiple times. And he slipped through that ninja Jesus. There he is. He's at it again. S -s -s Getting through. <laughs> so I think, right? So his teaching is gaining him notoriety. It's challenging. It's hard to accept. And on top of that, he's not just challenging people, he's challenging the spiritual world. When he teaches, demons make a scene. They start crying out, carrying on, because they know who he is, and they are deathly afraid. Folks, if you're teaching and demons are crying out, that's how you know you're doing something right, right? Jesus is proclaiming the word of God, and the demons, the spiritual realm, they are on edge. They're speaking out, and the best part is, Jesus tells them to shut up and to get out, and they do. In a word, silence, be gone, and they leave. On top of casting out demons, he's healing people. In Mark, we're not going to read this, but it's right before our passage, we find that Jesus shows up to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she has a fever. She's sick. Jesus walks into that room, has her sit up, and as he has her sit up, his presence, the, the fever leaves. 
He's healing people. As you can imagine, his authoritative teaching, casting out demons, healing people, word gets out and crowds start to flock to him. People just start amassing on his position wherever he's at. He's at Peter's mother-in-law's house and people just start coming. They just start flowing to that house. They're bringing all of their sick, all of the lame, all of the demon-possessed, and they form a line outside of the house that Jesus is staying in. Again, folks, this is very soon after Jesus returns from his 40-day retreat out in the wilderness. He has just started his ministry. He is brand new to the job. Maybe a couple days in, maybe a week or so in, and already the pace of life and the pressures of life just seem to increase exponentially from when he comes up out of the Jordan, the river, from his baptism. And I know most of us feel as if the treadmill of life is just constantly getting ramped up for us right? We feel like it can't get turned up anymore. I know many of us have incredibly full schedules, but what I want you to see is that Jesus' schedule was just as, probably more so, full than what yours is. I know you feel the pressures of life, the vice turning in on you, but what I want you to see is that the pressures of life were greater for your Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, can you think of anything more urgent than a line of sick, marginalized, lame, and demon-possessed people forming up outside of your office, and you know you have the power to heal them, all of them. This is Jesus' life. A full teaching schedule, healing the sick, casting out demons, setting people free, urgent things, emergencies of spiritual, eternal importance. And yet, we never see Jesus in a hurry. Not one time. We never see Jesus allow the tyranny of the urgent to drive his agenda or set his schedule. What we do see is a man who lives his life at an unhurried and yet purpose-filled pace. What we see is the restful wisdom of marginal living the restful wisdom of marginal living. Jesus was always fully present wherever he was, giving his attention to people who were constantly interrupting him, but always sticking to his clear convictions about what God was calling him to do and doing so in an incredibly kind and gracious way. He was interruptible, but Jesus was never sidetracked from the most important things. Folks, I want that for my life, don't you? I want to be present always, in every moment. I want to be fully present and engaged with my wife and my children, not escaping, swiping through some meaningless thing on my phone. I want to be present with my kids, not looking at my schedule constantly or in my brain constantly planning out what's next. I want to be present with my friends. I want to be present with the cashier that's checking me out at Walmart. I want to be interruptible by others and by God without treating them like they're interruptions. You know what that sounds like, right? Barking at your kids, snapping at your employees. None of us want to be like that. I want to be interruptible and present, but never sidetracked from the most important things. Don't you want that too? Jesus had it. My question is, how? How did he do this? Mark 1, verse 32 That evening, after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. And the whole 
town gathered at the door to watch. Pressure, urgency, emergency. The whole town gathers at the door to watch. So Jesus, he's interrupted, but he doesn't treat anybody as an interruption. He heals many people who were sick with various diseases. He casts out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Jesus is constantly interrupted by urgent things. He never treats people like interruptions, nor does he allow himself to be sidetracked by their agenda or sidetracked from the most important things. How did he do that? Verse 35. Highlight it, circle it, underline it. Before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and he went out to an isolated place to pray. He just spent 40 days in the wilderness. He's got maybe a day or two under his belt, and already he's retreating back to the quiet place to be alone with his heavenly Father. And as he does, later Simon and the others went out to interrupt, I mean find him. When they interrupted him, I mean when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Come quick, it's urgent. There's an emergency. There's a crowd. Hurry. But Jesus responds patiently, unhurriedly. That is not why I've come. We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. How did Jesus stay on mission for God without hurrying through life and without treating people like interruptions? Again, Jesus knew the restful wisdom of marginal living. Jesus knew the pressures of life probably more than most of us do, to be honest. Again, imagine lines of sick and demon-possessed people lining outside of your office and you know you have the power to heal them. That's pressure, a lot of it. But Jesus knew why he had been sent. Verse 38b, the last part of it. He knew God's agenda for his life. And he took time to regularly get with God to keep God's agenda ever before him. Jesus lived by a rule of life. We're going to talk about what a rule of life is in a little bit. This is it. A guiding principle. A guiding set of principles driven by God that allow us to learn what to say yes to and what to say no to. There are many things in this life. Many good things. But not everything has your name on it. Jesus knew that and he lived his life in this manner. It enabled him to live unhurried, to be interruptible, without ever being sidetracked from his destiny. A destiny is your specific God-given calling. God has gifted you and created you in unique and wonderful ways, and he has a purpose for you being on this earth. He wants to tell you what that is. He wants to help you craft that rule of life and your destiny, and as you do, that will begin to, to form a framework for you to learn how to create more margin. Because you can know what to say yes to and what to say no to. And as Jesus' schedule got more full, Jesus doubles down on his time alone with God. Throughout his ministry, we see Jesus time and time again, relentlessly and consistently retreating to his refuge, to the quiet place. Look Look at a couple verses here with me. Mark 1.35, rising very in the early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Mark 2.13, he went out again. Again, he went out beside the sea. 
a lonely place, a desolate place, a quiet place. Mark 2, 23, one Sabbath. He practiced Sabbath. Once, one day out of seven, every week, the Lord Jesus set a time to worship and to rest. He practiced Sabbath. As he, as he was Sabbathing, we're told, he was going through the grain fields, strolling out in nature. Mark, seven, or Mark 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples by the sea. Before he calls the disciples, an incredibly important decision that he has to make. Where do we find Jesus? Luke 6, 12, 13. In these days he went out to the mountain, the wilderness, a quiet place to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. He had a big decision to make. He doesn't rally the troops or do a Google search or make a pro-con list. He gets with his father alone, intentionally to be quiet, to listen, to pray before he makes his decision. When Jesus hears that his close friend and cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded, where do we find him? Alone in his house on the couch, binge-watching another season of Netflix? Drowning his sorrows and escaping at work? Just filling his days with, with work so that he doesn't have to think about what's happened? Drowning his sorrows at the local bar? No, where do we find Jesus? Mark, or Matthew 14, 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard of it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus gets alone with God to pray and to grieve the loss of his friend and the people flock to him. Does he snap at them? Does he bark at them? Get away from me, I'm trying to have my quiet time. No. Jesus is interrupted yet again and he doesn't treat these people as an interruption. Because he has margin, not just in his schedule, emotional margin, because he has a deep abiding relationship with his Father in heaven who supplies everything that he cannot supply for himself from within. He's present with these people. He doesn't hurry them along. He teaches them. He heals many. And then at the end of the day, Matthew 14 verse 23 tells us that after he had dismissed these crowds, he, he knows boundaries hey, it's time for everyone to go home and rest. I need it too. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Now, most of us, when we get to this time, mentally, emotionally exhausted, we think we just have to crash. We just need some sleep. And a lot of times that is incredibly helpful. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you, cannot, you and I can do is sleep because we don't want to seek God when we're exhausted. We don't want to do the healthy things that we're called to do that give us life when we're exhausted. But sometimes, time alone with God is even more important to us than sleep. Jesus knows this. And we're told, if you keep reading in Matthew, that he spends time alone with God until the late or early hours of the morning, until 3, maybe 6 a.m. This church is the secret to unhurrying your life and learning to live present in the moment without treating people like interruptions, and without be, being distracted by things that aren't important. Time alone with God is the secret. Time alone with God where you receive his daily direction for your life's destiny. That's the secret to unhurrying your life and living like Jesus. Folks, many things are troublesome in our world, aren't they? Many things are anxiety-inducing. Many things are urgent. There's always another emergency. But only one thing is needed, as Jesus told Martha last week. 
Many of us have never learned Jesus' restful wisdom of marginal living because we allow ourselves to be driven by every other thing rather than the direction of our Father in heaven. Many of our calendars and schedules are out of control and crazy busy because we don't know the directives of God on our life. We don't know why God has put us on this earth and instead we've allowed the noise and distractions of our world to drown out God's voice from our life. Rather than being guided and directed by God, we are driven by the fear of missing out. We're driven by the next adrenaline and dopamine rush that comes from yet another accomplishment or the acclaim that comes from the cheer of the crowd. Rather than be guided and directed through life by our good shepherd who leads us by green pastures and still quiet waters, we allow ourselves to be driven through life by the cattle prod of pressure. And as the vice of life squeezes tighter in on us, as the demands of our schedule and responsibilities increase, we naturally cut the one thing out of our life that has the power to restore God's rest to our souls. Rather than retreat to the quiet place of strength that we so often see Jesus retreating to, the quiet place, that's the first thing we cut out of our schedules, isn't it? We're running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Go, go, go. Doing all of this stuff, but we're never really getting around to what matters most. We get sucked into escapism rather than engagement. We run out of energy to do what's actually life-giving. Things like prayer and community and Sabbath and time alone with God. Instead, we turn to what's easy. Whatever will enable us to turn off the brains in our switch. To Netflix, to the internet, to social media, to food, to alcohol, to porn. You name your drug that you use to escape with. We don't have the margin to retreat to the quiet place. To be alone with ourselves, with our thoughts, as scary as they might be sometimes to be alone with our God who would meet us in whatever emotional state we find ourselves in. And as our margin decreases and our time alone with God decreases, we become easy prey for the tempter. We become emotionally unhealthy, unhealthy, easily sidetracked, distracted from what's most important, and we begin to live reactionary lives. Just a small thing, a snide comment from a coworker, a harsh tone from your spouse, a roommate, a little criticism, a little pushback, a little opposition. Whatever it is, it's a trigger. We lose our temper. We lash out. We bark at our kids. We get defensive. We sulk. We get upset. We get anxious. Whatever it is. These are the signs and symptoms of a life without silence and solitude without a commitment to be alone with our Father, a life where we refuse to retreat as Jesus did to the quiet place. Folks, the greatest thief of our joy and life in Jesus is the exhaustion that comes from an over-busy life. So what are we to do? What are we to do? It's not enough for me to just tell you, you should create more margin in your life. That's not that helpful. Here's what I do think is helpful creating a rule of life for yourself. Jesus knew what God had set him on this earth to do. That's what Mark 1 verse 38 tells us. 
Mark 1 verse 38 tells us that Jesus had clarity about his destiny, about the specific call on his life. And because he had that clarity, because he had a framework of of a list of priorities, of the things that he was going to be about and what God was calling him to, that enabled him when the pressure and the urgent emergencies of others came in and threatened to drive how he was going to set his schedule, he would not allow it because he was consistently coming before the Father and inviting him to set the agenda. Lord, Lord, Lord God, you guide me. Holy Spirit, you guide me through the day. Remind me of what, what you have for me. Show me the good things that have my name on it. Not every good thing has your name on it. Jesus lived by a rule of life, and that helped him create margin. To help you develop a rule of life, I have a little workbook. And some of you who are type A are like, yes, this will be super helpful. And others of you who are artistic will be like, I hate that. If it's not helpful, don't use it. I think it's helpful. If you commit to spend some time working through it, it's from John Mark Comer's church. I amended it a little bit, but it's a workbook that says developing a personal rule of life. It explains what a rule of life is. He says at the very beginning, you might find the word rule to be constraining, but actually the Latin word for rule was a word for trellis in a vineyard. In the same way, a vine needs a trellis to lift it up off the ground so it can bear the maximum amount of fruit and keep free from predators and diseases, we need a rule or a trellis, a kind of support structure, to organize our life around, abiding in Jesus, who is our vine. It's been said, Comer writes, that we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. A rule of life is simply a tool to that end, Rather than a rigid, legalistic to-do list, it's a life-giving structure for freedom, growth, and joy. A rule of life is simply meant to help you answer the question, why has God sent me here? So if you want help in developing a rule of life, pick up this workbook. I have it online as well. There's some copies over here. You can download the PDF. You can get it. Start working through it. I commend it to you as a very helpful resource. The only other thing I'll say in regards to learning to live with more margin, like Jesus, is that you cannot overestimate the importance of time alone with God. Jesus was ruthless about his time alone with God. Again, sleep is important, but sometimes it's not the most important thing. Time alone with God, that to to engage in relationship with your heavenly Father, is the most important thing. There is nothing more important in your life than a relationship with, with your Lord. Nothing. And folks, you and I know how to have relationships, don't we? Time, unhurried time, and communication. Unhurried time and communication is what makes for a good, growing, beautiful relationship. We don't need to complicate this. If you want to feel close to God, start talking to Him about everything in your life and seek to create more space in your life to drown out the noise so that you can better hear His still, small voice. One thing I've recently been doing when I'm alone is turn off the radio. Declutter the noise. Start talking to God when I'm in the car. Before your feet touch the floor when you wake up in the morning, start a conversation with your dad. Morning, God. I invite you to walk with me throughout this day. Carve out some time each and every day to spend time in his word, to remind yourself who it is you're talking with. It's not what the world says. Build your image of the Father based off of what he has claimed in his word. 
Spend time remembering what Jesus has done for you. Remember that there is nothing that you can do to ever rescue yourself from your sin or your anxiety. You see, church, Satan cannot keep you from being rescued by the rescuer. What he can do is keep you so distracted that you are unable to fix your gaze upon the only one that can rescue you. Carve out some time to fix your perspective, to refix your gaze on Jesus, the rescuer. Run to him, and if you do, he will meet you with his grace and his mercy. He tells us in 1 Peter, cast your cares on me. Why? Because I desperately want to care for you. Folks, I'll leave you with this question. What kind of relationship would you have with your spouse or with one of your friends if you gave them the amount of time that you give to your Heavenly Father? Jesus shows us that as our schedules fill up, intentional time alone and quiet to be with yourself and God should not be the first thing that we cut from our schedules. It should be the thing that we protect most fiercely. And as you consider developing a rule of life for yourself, know that the best place to start that process will be in the lonely place, the quiet place, with your thoughts and with your God. Before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to the isolated place to pray. Later, when Simon and the others went to find him, when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. Do you know why you have come to this earth? God does. And I think it's time we give him the time to show us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the invitation to come to you as a place of refuge, as a fortress of strength, of rest, of peace, and of joy. Lord Jesus, I know being alone with our thoughts is a scary thing. I am oftentimes ashamed at what comes up from my heart, frightened sometimes by the dark places my mind can go. And even in those times, you invite me to come to you, to tell tell you all about it. You're not put off or frightened or scared. You know what's in me. And you've offered to rescue me from myself. Lord Jesus, forgive us, forgive me, when I try to do all the rescuing myself apart from you. I pray that no one in here would fill up another list of spiritual to-dos in an effort to create some sense, some feeling, in an effort to save ourselves. Father, that's not what you're calling us to. You're calling us to a place of rest. Rest. You're calling us to the foot of the rescuer. I pray, Father, as we come into your presence, I pray that it would be a time of life. That you would restore our souls. That you would lift our eyes, not to the hills, not to Google, not to our to-do lists, not to politics or governments, but that you would lift our eyes beyond the hills to you, the only one who has the power and love to save us, the mercy and grace that is so much more than any one of our sins. Draw us into the quiet place, Lord. For your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.